Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover inside the house there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Etsy. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Now until May 12th, get up to 30% off personalized jewelry, style, decor, and so many other items mom will love. And if you want her to know you put a ton of thought into her present, use Gift Mode. Gift Mode on Etsy takes the stress out of gifting so you can easily find well-crafted, original, and affordable pieces from small shops. Just tap or click Gift Mode on your Etsy app or Etsy.com. Then answer a few short questions about mom, and Gift Mode instantly gives you curated ideas based on hundreds of personas. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? <laughs> well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me, so I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii, okay? And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. 
In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Throw it air, throw it air, I think. Um, which is, of course, I think. I mean, it's, the thing is, it's written down in front of me. I've no idea how to pronounce it. It's Scottish Gaelic. It sounded actum, like it. Actum. It sounded it. I mean, yeah. delving deep into your inner Gaelic. No, your inner I don't Celt. Think so. Anyway. <laughs> ah, well, thank you, of course. This Sunday's. You're listening, of course, to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. This Sunday's Family Stories edition of the pod included a couple of listeners writing in about incidents in Scotland. Hence our choice of language today. Yes. Uh, Plus, we had that amazing story of the the clandestine mission to occupy Poland to pick up a crashed V-weapon. Yeah. I mean, that story. First of all, there's the the fact that the the Germans are are testing uh, V-bombs in uh, V-2s in Poland and just letting them crash all over Poland. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, they don't care about don't care about Poland. Yeah, they don't care. They don't care about Poland, um, uh, which is quite extraordinary. And then the sort of the the depth of the uh, skullduggery and um, you know that they that they that the Polish resistance managed to find one, take it, hide it, take it to bits, and then get word through to the British, who then send a plane from Brindisi, Dakota. From it's just it's it's extraordinary. It shows the war in a real. If you're, if you're, you know, if you're looking at Northwest Europe all the time, shows the war in a sort of another three-dimensional um, aspect, isn't it? That Italy yeah. is your way into Poland and all that sort of stuff. Well, yeah, don't Quite forget a- when they were doing the um, relief operations, the Bomber Command was doing the, I mean, not yeah. Bomber Command, the RAF was doing relief operations in the Warsaw Uprising. They were doing them from Brindisi, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, it's extraordinary. It's quite incredible. Um, and that that was... Uh, that, that was um, one of our family stories today, and we hope you enjoy that that Sunday thread. I mean, they're all they're all basically completely boggling. The whole thing's completely boggling, and and it and again showing that thing of how it um, involved people in all sorts of. Th- and, you know, we're not just talking about people being infantrymen or people in tanks or people in planes. You know, that the, there's this extra ex- panoply. That's the word. This extraordinary panoply <laughs> of things that people got up to, and uh, yeah. and thank you to our listeners for. Um, Helping out with that. I mean, mm. I must admit, I was quite, I was quite intrigued by HMS Dasher and there being some sort of, you know, hushing that all up and some skullduggery yep. going on there. I mean, really? I mean, yep. maybe, maybe. Don't know. Maybe. Who knows? Let's talk to Who my knows? friend Steve um, Prince. He'll know. He'll know. Yeah. Now, last, now, last week we talked at considerable length about, um, well, uh, General Gavin's post-match analysis of uh, what exactly um, went wrong at Nijmegen, or if it went wrong, even, because he didn't particularly think it went wrong. Absolutely um, brilliant uh, plan, didn't it? Yeah, it all went according to plan. 90% successful. And he, um, <laughs> uh, But in the meantime, Paul Baker, who's a regular listener, sent, us, sent me this. So it, um, he sent me this fantastic stuff. Uh, it, the letter in full is, Dear Al, please find enclosed the market garden handouts I received a couple of years ago. Um, a super leisure tour for four days that walked the ground from Joe's Bridge to Arnhem. It's true what you said on your great po- podcast about walking the ground to get a sense of perspective. Well, it's you that say that. That's your catchphrase, Jim. And Market Garden remains my Holy Grail campaign ever since the Bridge Too Far came out in 1977. Oh, well. And what he Sounds sent like you're me, singing from the same hymn sheet there. Uh, absolutely. So what he sent me <clears throat> is the Battlefield Tour Guide. Yep. Uh, with a famous picture of uh, yep. of a, a Cromwell going over the... Um, 
the bridge and a carrier in the foreground. Then there, Battlefield Tour Notes. But what he also sent me, and this is the, why I brought this up, because it's sort of, it, it, it's quite, it's an interesting document in reflection to the Gavin Nymagen piece, is Airborne Division report on Operation Market with a sketch on it by someone's secretary or whatever. Or, That's a good picture, isn't it? It's a good picture of the bridge and of the Pegasus. And it comes with a it comes with a letter from Field Marshal uh, Sir Bernard Montgomery KCB DSO to to Urquhart, written on the twenty eighth of September. So, right right at the at the end of the battle, um, I want to express to you personally and to every officer and man in your division my appreciation for of what you all did at Arnhem for the Allied cause. You did not fail. I mean the. the this is fascinating. So obviously, what what you've got um, uh, is the famous letter by Montgomery. You know that, that says, it, it, "In years to come, it would be a great thing for a man to be able to say, I fought at Arnhem.'" So basically, first up, straight off, you did your best, ass covering from Monty, and then a and then a um, a one hundred ninety nine point report on the battle by Urquhart. Um, now, obviously, there's a whole lot he can't possibly know because he doesn't really know what happened to the elements of 1st Parachute Brigade when they got to the bridge, you know, blah, 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 because that's uh, that's essentially unknowable at that point because they're all the survivors are in the bag and that battle was fought essentially, you know, um, isolated from divisional command. So or, or the, from for the rest of the division. But uh, <clears throat> the, the crucial part. It's point one hundred and ninety nine, and which is the only real analysis in this whole thing. The operation, the operation market, was not one hundred percent success, and did not end quite as was intended. <laughs> I mean, honestly, the losses were heavy, but all ranks appreciate that the risks involved were reasonable. There is no doubt that we would all, all would willingly undertake another operation under similar conditions in the future. That's the most extraordinary thing. And obviously, obviously, one of the things that happens is, uh, 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 and we'll get to this in a second, one of the things that happens is Sosoboski takes a lot of the rap for um, the performance of the Polish Parachute Brigade not long after this and is landed in it. And because First Airborne have failed, Urquhart doesn't get the blame. They decide it's not his, they decide it's not his fault. And what happens, what, what, what then proceeds to happen is the, as the, historiography gets going by the people who survived the officers who survived this battle is it all turns out it's the RAF's fault for not wanting to drop them on the bridge you know it wasn't us performing badly on the day it's the RAF's fault it's what emerges from the from the yeah. um uh but but that is so interesting because he's not doing what Gavin does where Gavin goes hey gee well I made this decision for that reason he simply says at the end well we thought it was worth a punt which I think is really really mm. interesting I agree. I mean, I, I mean, I've got to say that overall sentiment, I don't disagree with at all. You know, and I've, you know, and as you know, I've just been kind of looking again at Market Garden on, on my Sherwood Rangers book, although they have a peripheral role in it, and I still think it was. I, I, you know, I still think it was it was worth the punt, considering the assets they've got and the opportunities it would bring if it if it if it came off. And, and well, and a particular, the bottom line is, is, the, the, is the two things. Is first, first of all, you know, um, it's it's the the Germans not blowing the bridges when clearly they should have done. You know, that that is a military error, isn't it? That's a that is a bad decision. Um, so that gives the Allies a glimmer that that on paper they should never have had. And then and then there is the opportunity to get to Arnhem. It's just it's not taken. And actually, if you hadn't doubled up on the 
on the uh, you know protection protecting the, uh, the the landing zones the drop zones and Nibergen Bridge had been taken on the uh, charged on the 19th and straight across it would have worked could have worked I don't know woulda but coulda coulda I think you've got to go you've got to go cl- more coulda than woulda I mean the, uh, after all the airborne lot they absolutely think it's worth a try because otherwise the airborne lot have no existential purpose whatsoever they have no there is no reason for them to exist and they'll get turned into 52nd lowland division and and you know who famously entered the war below sea level who are tra- trained as mountain soldiers you know that, that that's the fate that awaits formations that aren't being used for the role they've been designated and the airborne people all know this so that's exactly why Urquhart, who's always criticized by the airborne fraternity for being a newcomer he's saying of course we do it again because that's our job this is our role and and if the if he starts saying, wow, you know, this kind of thing really isn't what airborne soldiers are for, they'll end up, you know, like yeah. I say, they'll end up in a landing craft somewhere, <laughs> you know, doing doing the thing they don't they don't think they're designed for. So it's it's all completely understandable, I think, a, a, a lot of it. Though they're then they're then they're then, you know, this 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 historiography then emerges that that anything that went wrong on on the day on the ground is nothing to do with them. It's to do with boring old REF and uh, and so on. But the but. I mentioned um, Sosabowski there. Now, what a night we had on th- last Thursday. For those of you who don't know, every Thursday evening, oh, it was extraordinary. Every Thursday evening, we do the pod live on the internet. Um, so you can, you can, I mean, you can sit in your laptop and be assailed by us and the sidebar of shame of members with their questions and comments and back chat. Oh boy, mainly. do they make comments. They do make comments. So every Thursday evening, we do this pod live on the internet. And more than 700 of you join in and have a bit of fun, interactive fun, and a beer or two. And last week, um, most extraordinary thing, we were joined by none other, none other than Hal Sosabowski, the great-grandson of Stanislav Sosabowski, leader of uh, First Independent Polish Parachute Brigade at Arnhem, which was incredible, wasn't it? Yeah. And, and he had the look of him as well, didn't he? He had exactly yeah, he the really same did. eyes and eyebrows. It was extraordinary. You know, yeah. he, he had a sort of, you know, he had a sort of, um, he had a little sort of thin beard. But if he if he'd whipped that off and kind of fleshed out the tash, it'd have been him. Well, and he struck me, and he was saying, "Oh, you know, my my the thing about my great grandfather's thing about my great grandfather's, you know, he was uncompromising." And I have a feeling that Hal maybe um, uh, had <laughs> a stubborn the same streak. cloth. Possibly. Um, he's a professor of the public understanding of science. And I think he was on Ministry of Mayhem. Some people were talking about that um, uh, back in the day, demonstrating science on telly. But he lectures about um, about uh, General Sosabowski and about um, uh, Dr. Major Sosabowski, his grandfather, who was uh, involved with the Water Uprising as well. Mm. And um, he does. Uh, he, he's, he's gone back and found out about it and researched it and really looked into it. And of course, the sort of the four acts of his life, because after all, Sosabowski, after the war, can't go back to Poland, ends up working as a warehouse man in Acton. Like, uh, uh, and this very peculiar, you know, after the war life that a lot of these Polish soldiers had, because after all, you know, Cold War, they weren't, they, they weren't, their existence was not welcome in the in the Polish communist state. So um, anyway, uh, that was quite, I thought it was extraordinary. And we're going to get Hal back on to do the give us the full Sosabowski and uh, take us through it all properly because it's an amazing story. Yeah, no, an amazing story. Was, but also, he was a really, I really warmed to him, didn't you? I mean, he was just a nice, nice fella. I had an amazing time when I was. Um, I remember I was doing all the research for the two Polish corps, um, who had you know these were the guys who were captured by the Soviets in 1939, then sent to a gulag, then after Barbarossa were reluctantly released, 
um, by the Soviet Union and basically given almost nothing and told to go and muster in Kazakhstan, um, uh, which they did. And then they went from Kazakhstan into Iran and from Iran into Iraq, where they were um, trained up and fed up by the British, uh, mainly at Mosul and Kirkuk is where they were. Uh, were their training grounds then finally went to palestine for for finishing off their training shipped over to italy in march 1944 and their first battle was was the fourth battle of casino and they then stayed with it all the way up through the leg of uh leg of italy shooting at <laughs> any garibaldi brigade partisans they could see because they're communist <laughs> <laughs> but but anyway i remember going to uh, and so i got in touch with the uh with the two core association and as you will well know, just down the road from you is the uh, the Polish centre in Hammersmith, and and so we met there, had Polish lunch and everything. And I met with Vladek and Tomasz and um, and Stanislaw, and off they went. And it was, God, it was amazing. I had this just fabulous day with them. Um, Stan was one of those guys who just didn't stop talking. Vladek was very kind of reserved. Thomas was a bit more kind of thoughtful and kind of, you know, considered. But Stan was just like, blah, 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 all the way through. But it was the most amazing thing. And of course, I was new to all this. So their stories of kind of, you know, fighting the war in 1939, then being in the resistance, then being caught by the Russians, then being put in a gulag, then being sidetracked while some whole load of Russians tried to get them to work in a cooperative farm instead, somewhere in the kind of, you know, middle of the Urals or something. I mean, Jesus. I mean, it just, it was just never ending. Um, uh, and just the most amazing people. And I remember Vladek told me that, you know, he'd only gone back to Poland um, in 1995 for the first time. And half of his his nephews and nieces um, were now in Belarusia and spoke Russian and couldn't speak Polish. Yeah, because the borders all moved. Yeah, the borders all moved. Post-war. Yeah. 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 I mean, just amazing. God. That is incredible. But they're I mean, incredibly they're... unbitter. They weren't bitter about it. They were sad about it, but they weren't bitter. They were they were all three of them, very different people. They were all incredibly proud of their service, and rightly so. I mean, goodness me. Um uh, uh, and you know, proud Polish nationals, of course. But yeah, I suppose if you put it in a longer a longer historical a historical sort of continuity, you know, Poland po- that's what Poland's history has been, is these sort of gig- colossal upheavals and mm. changes and you know that that I don't know what the longest period Poland Poland unadjusted has been. You 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 know what I mean? Well, but actually, the, 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 the bit the, the longest bit that hasn't been unadjusted, I think, was from seventeen ninety three to nineteen eighteen when it wasn't Poland. But but yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it exactly, was Austria, exactly. Austria, Prussia, exactly. and Russia. Exactly, exactly. I mean, but but, but that's so that's so so when you look at it like that, it's sort of um, maybe. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I don't. You know, or maybe once you get older, you're not bitter anymore. You're just sad. You know, maybe it's a, a passing of time thing as much as anything else. But I mean, it's um, interesting because in the 1930s, there is there is not a single poll um, who uh, alive before 1918 that was can remember. You know, that was was brought up as as a poll. I mean, you know, th- they yeah, absolutely yeah. held on to this national identity and this concept of 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 a nation state of Poland. Absolutely, they did, but they were not. You know, they, they were part of there, this. There wasn't, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't a Poland, Poland at that yeah. point. Yeah, 
Yes. Um. Oh God. Anyway. Well. So we're gonna get. We're gonna try and get um Hal back on um uh, to explain what gravity is to us and why vaccines are safe. No. To talk about um, <laughs> sort of the, the, well, the general. I would quite like to him about a few other things as well. I've got to say. I mean, <laughs> I'm sure he's a very interesting fellow. But, um... Um, now, and this Thursday, we've got an intriguing episode of the pod with Oliver Moody, who's the Berlin correspondent of The Times, um, who's been digging into the story of Hans Globke. Yeah. Um, the man. Yeah. Now, that was that was that was really, really interesting. We recorded that last week. That was fascinating. And again, throws up some interesting questions mm. about. So basically, Globke was a was a, um, a civil servant. And uh, but a civil servant in the uh, 20s and 30s and then a civil servant again in the very late 40s. 20s, 30s, 40s, and then and then the 50s and the 60s, and when um uh, when the Nazis were in power, he wrote the booklet that explained the Nazi racial laws for judges. So if a judge had a a racial law case come before him, he'd go, "Oh, in a minute, what does that what does that bit mean?" So he did that. So interpreted the laws for judges to digest, and then became an architect of the modern West German state. Um, which is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Um. And it's part of that thing of that you can't obviously you can't arrest and try all the Nazis in Germany because you'll you'll never finish doing that, yep. you know, because um, <laughs> they go all the way around the world twice or whatever. It's one of those yeah, sort yeah, of equations, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Um, and and but also but however, he was a was he? I mean, then you get into questions of am you know is it his ambition? Is it his career? Does he say, is his duty just to do as he's told by his political by his political masters? And and it's not. Is to question why, and it's all. It's a. I thought it was absolutely. It was a fascinating conversation. That wasn't it, and also, and also, you know, quite depressing. <laughs> yeah, it was. But, but, um, I mean, <laughs> it's um, you know, we had that conversation, didn't we, last summer about uh, with Nora Krug about sort of legacy and stuff. You know, I do find that endlessly fascinating about how kind of contemporary Germans deal with it and how they feel about it, whether they feel anything at all nowadays. But, but I think a lot of them still do, and how. You know, when you've had this sort of dark period, what do you do? Because you can't imprison everyone. Um, yeah. You know, well, we, were, I, well, we were suppose... talking about with France as well. It's the same same policy. You know, de Gaulle's policy of just sort of, you know, sweeping it all out. You know, let's not, we're going to not talk about it because we need to go forward. Yeah. I mean, I suppose it's, you know, the, the, the question we ask here in this country is, you know, could it all, could it have happened here? Could it have happened here is the question we have to, we, that we like to ask in the UK, don't we? Yeah. Or has been asked. In Germany, the question is, it happened here. What does that tell us? And obviously, obviously, you know, it's not this generation of Jones. It's nothing to do with them. You know, blah blah blah, and all and, and the, the obvious things around that. But it did happen there. It did happen to that country, to that culture. And uh, uh, you know, that's the that's the, that must be the question you can't avoid asking of yourself. I suppose if you're German, I don't know. Or or is the thing, as you say, is the is the smart thing to go? Well, oh well, better make sure that doesn't happen again. But we've got to keep we've got to keep moving. We've got to move away from it. Yeah, I mean, just incre- it's just impossible to know, isn't it? And I mean, crikey, you know, I've met so many Germans over the years. And, and you know, there, there is a lot of, you know, obviously, as you would expect, you know, some people feel a lot more strongly about it than others. I mean, I do remember, you know, I I, I got to know um, a PhD student who was American, who was married to a German, and, and she helped me out with a lot of translation stuff in Freiburg. She was at the University of Freiburg. And her husband, Ingo, um, I remember him just saying, I absolutely hate being german i'm i'm so embarrassed and ashamed about being german really yeah he's the same age as me you know grew up in the 70s 80s you know i thought crikey i said you know i really want to sort of pat him on the back and go you know here's a, have a beer come on it's all right 
<laughs> but, but you know, I mean, you can you can understand, can't you? That that you know your forebears do help form you. You know, it's and you are of course a completely different person. But but it's this this thing in the background, isn't it? This 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 stain. But then that but then that's the debate about the British Empire anyway. Is that 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 idea is coming through, isn't it? That, you know, yes. that, that you know uh, that yes, and so on. That's been the, a, a, a big. Part part of the hot potato. Yeah, I'm just, in the oh, yeah but I'm, I'm not noticing that many Britons kind of hating themselves no, but, about it in the quite No, the but isn't way. there? But, but there's but there's there's a there's a school of thought that says that they ought to, isn't there? Yeah, no, but, absolutely there is. Absolutely there is. But but maybe but you know, but but obviously you know, slavery was abolished in the early part in, in this country in the early part of the 19th century, and and I suppose that that distance of time is is more significant than the 75 years since the Third Reich, maybe. Anyway, right. Well, should we no, do some I'm, questions? Anyway? Well, yes. Yeah, so I just thought I've, anyway. I've got another thought, and that is that. Um, oh, know, yeah, great, this, this weekend, I've been I've been writing about the Battle of Geilenkirchen. Oh, yeah. And, so and how the misery so, of the mud and and you know it's like Passchendaele basically. So so um, for those who uh, for anyone who's just joined us um, uh, on the podcast, because <laughs> one of the one of the really lovely things about about. Um, uh, doing this is that we still do get tweets going. I have just discovered your podcast. Um, uh, and, and, hope, and then they say, and I love it, which is obviously the thing we're after. There's no one goes, I've just discovered your podcast. And I've waded shit. through more than two, more than 200 episodes of one load of crap. Will you two never shut up? Um, but, um, but you are currently writing a book about the Sherwood Rangers, who yeah. are um, an armoured formation, a yeomanry formation, so strictly speaking, territorials, yep. but who nevertheless, um, they started on horseback in Palestine, but by 1944-45 are in Sherman tanks, Part of the armoured spearhead, the tip of the Allied, uh, the British advance, 21st Army Group advance into Germany at this point. So they've come from D-Day and it's January, is it? It's January, Garlingkirchen? Garlingkirchen uh, is late November. It's the 18th of November. Late November, mid, right. Mid, mid, Mid-November. And, and it's just fascinating because you're suddenly, you, you suddenly, I, I think so much of the, of the, of the narrative of that last year of the war is, you, you know, you've, you've got D-Day, then you've got Normandy. Everyone feels on quite, sort of quite firm ground on that one and then you've got market garden and we kind of sort of know about the race through belgium and northern france and stuff and we know about market garden that's all fine and then the rest of it is just all a bit of a kind of sort of wintry mess isn't it until you're sort of you know you cross the rhine in march and and you know you've got a few kind of ink spots such as obviously particularly the battle of the bulge but also i suppose um maybe battle of arken in october just about um, bit of the shelf, just about, but but it's all a bit murky, isn't it? And it because it's yeah, just yeah, winter yeah, yeah. and dark and miserable, and they're not really going very far. And and, and it is well, and know, also there aren't there also there aren't any spectacular, you know, because the thing I think one of the interesting things about that narrative is D Day is you know it's an unequivocal moment, isn't it? An awful lot happens on one day. It's a big, it's a sort of, it's a it's a it's a battle you can look at in a twenty four hour thing and go, they're trying to achieve this, they do or they don't. When you get into the Normandy battle, it, people tend to not. You know, when you enter the colossal cracks phase, they tend to focus on Goodwood and Cobra because the rest, again, is complicated and murky and core level strategy and all that sort of thing. And it's 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 nowhere near as, you know, as clear cut. Let's be honest now. Arnhem, after all, is only nine days. So you can it's a nice, tidy battle. You can write about in one book quite easily. The Walker and offensive. Well, what's that? I don't know who's involved. It, it gets more. It, it's not as, de- you know, th- this campaign tends to be written up in terms of decisive moments. Yeah. Rather than defi- rather uh, because after all, we what we really want when we write when we read military history is is decisive battles, isn't it? So yeah. what your Waterloo's 
your Trafalgar's. That's the tradition, isn't it? Yep. So D-Day sort of fills in for that, even though it isn't in that category at all. D-Day fills in in that way of a day you can at least look at and get your head around and go... They're trying to get. They're trying to achieve their five things. They achieve them. You know what? You know what I mean. Yeah. Whereas you're now talking about this sort of bitty granular, um, uh, um, you know, crumbling away of the German position, uh, which isn't, which doesn't. You can't write a Waterloo book about. You, no. Or, or, and it's not even about a book, or even do a mental frame of reference like that with this sort of campaign, can you? No, I think. But I think what's interesting is is that we tend to look at the Second World War in terms of ink spots, uh, and for the historian, it's always in, and f- for me for venturing into you know I'm writing about nineteen late nineteen forty four and nineteen forty five for the first time ever. So although I've I've done, you know I've studied all this, I haven't looked at it in in quite the detail that I have other parts of the Second World War, and so suddenly going into this and it, it stops being ink spots and it becomes a, a continuous narrative. And seeing how those different those ink spots actually all bleed out into one another is really really interesting. You know that that you know, and I'm suddenly and it's making me think a lot about it. It's making me think about about what was expected of the guys on the ground and indeed in the air. Um, it's making me think about how the, you know the Allied approach, particularly because they're the aggressors in this particular instance. Uh, and you know you have Market Garden that doesn't work, but then falling very sharply on the tails of of, of Market Garden is the battle for Arken. Now, Arken is a big city. It's a big nodal point on the Seafried Line or the West Wall, as it was also known, which is the kind of series of border defences um, just to the uh, um, to the west of the River Rhine, sort of around, sort of between the, the Mars and the and the Ruhr, uh, R-O-E-R. And Arken is right on the border. It's a big city. It's where Charlemagne is buried. You know, it's significant. This is this is you know this is like kind of taking. I don't know. It's like taking York or. Bristol or something, you know, it's, it's quite big. It's, yeah, Leeds. It's a it's a big deal, you know, and uh, but but the hope is that the US First Army can sort of smash their way through and also kind of you know make a big hole and let's let's see how this plays out. But it's clear, uh, I mean, it, the, you know, Arkham finally falls, I think, on the twenty first or twenty fourth, something like that of of October. Um, but it's on the eighteenth that that Eisenhower makes up his mind. He goes, right, okay, this hasn't worked. We are now going to fall back onto the broad front front strategy which is how americans you know feel more comfortable anyway you know and this feeds absolutely into the kind of allied way of war and particularly the american way of war which you have your strategic objective and then you just bulldoze your way forward with huge material might and frankly considering you've got um conscript armies and you want to limit the number of people that are killed on the front line that is the best policy uh, and it is one that is brought about so much criticism i mean the criticism of the the late 1944 early 1945 strategy is just legion you know whether it whether it's max in in uh, um you know armageddon his book armageddon there's another big book i was reading the other day um williamson murray um and a guy called Willett, I think it is. But, you know, they're writing about it exactly the same. Keegan's the same. You know, it just goes on and on and on. These big narratives about it, just like saying, you know, this was not the way forward. But actually, when you look at the you look at the geography of that part of the ground of of the of the um, of the border land, you know, it's all forested. It's quite hilly. Lots of rivers. You know, and then you go a bit further south. And there's even more rivers. And there's even more mountains. And it's even hillier in sort of France, the Tsar region, and and then down towards the Alps and all the rest. of it. I mean, what are you supposed to do? You know, you've got you've got 
One Canadian army, one British army, three American armies, one French army by this stage. That's a lot of armies. You've got a 450 mile front. You know that the Germans are, are running out of stuff. So let's stretch them. If you kind of put maximum pressure all along that line and just push your way forward, churn your way forward using, again, firepower, which is proven to work and to save lives, why wouldn't you do it? Well, you know, what is the alternative? You know, the alternatives are the kind of coup de man kind of, you know, thunderbolt strike of Market Garden didn't work. Or suddenly, bam, you know, the Schwerpunkt of Arken didn't work. So you haven't got an alternative. And it's all very well sort of going, yeah, but Patton kind of, you know, he's got a bit more drive and tactical now. But, you know, more people died in his army than anywhere else. But, but also, but, but also the other thing is, uh, what time of year is it? What time of year are we talking right. about here? Right. right? Because, because, because after all, after all, in, in the summer, um, manoeuvre warfare does work for, for, a, for a brief period. Doesn't it? Once you've done that, once you've done the thing where you you bind, hold, gr- bind, hold, and grind the enemy into submission uh, in Normandy, you then do break out and you can cover vast distances in August. In high summer, it's possible because the ground is harder because it's been dry, the the roads aren't as clogged with mud, um, uh, the fields aren't ploughed, you know, blah 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 blah. Some quite simple, fundamental campaigning things. Because after all, you know, when's the Battle of Hastings? Uh, It's uh, October. So very, very late, like last gasp post-harvest campaigning season, isn't it? That, right? That's probably when you can reliably fight at all, isn't it? Um, Cut your cut off. After all, because Market Garden, I mean, again, to talk about that, the thing that does, one of the things that completely f- does for Market Garden is the weather. You know, the, 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 the weather is the thing that, that destroys the um, subsequent lift policy that they use because the second lift is delayed by, by bad weather, the third lift is delayed by fog, famously, you know. So it's the weather. So the weather starts going wrong after the equinox in particular. The weather really tilts against you. You know, that's a naval adage, you know, that after the equinox, the, the, you know, the days, are, the days are getting much, much shorter, much, much faster. The weather's gone to shit and so on. But and you're talking about November. So, well, of course, exactly. you can't. Do, of course, you can't do giant breakouts in if the weather's not going to help. Well, this 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 was exactly my second point. So I wrote literally on Friday afternoon, I wrote once the Sherwood Rangers reached the Pollenberg and Shinnan area, there was a week in which to get ready for the battle. This is the Battle of Gardenkirk, which starts on the 18th of November. It rained almost incessantly every single day. It was also cold and the days were drawing in dramatically. Throughout history, warfare had always been so much harder in winter, which was why it had mostly happened during the campaigning season of summer. Modern warfare was really no different but the Allies were in a hurry to get on and finish the war. Shorter days, freezing cold, driving rain, no matter. They would fight on, but it made the misery of war even more miserable. Well, and and we talked to Jonathan Ware, whenever it was, uh, wherever it was, three, four weeks ago, and he talked about the simple bit, you know, let's say you've got to get a 17-pounder anti-tank gun up forward. The simple business of being randomly mortared, it being muddy, the road, the road being congested, 
This, these things are all, and the, let's exclude the Germans mortaring you from this list. These things are multiplied. Not, and I won't use the word exponentially because no one ever means exponentially when they say exponentially. But these things are multiplied enormously by poor weather, aren't they? Yeah, they absolutely are. And Gardenkirk is really interesting because because actually the Americans have been up at Gardenkirk, sort of facing off against Gardenkirk, and since third week of September, nineteenth of September, so market garden time. Um, but then they've gone into a holding role because they haven't quite got enough ammunition to do it in the way that they want to do it. I mean, they've still got shitloads of ammunition compared to the Germans, but but it's not enough for their way of war, and that's that's important. So they're on a holding pattern. So what they do instead is they just shell the place, and you know bombers come over and they just bomb it and all the rest of it. So by the time you know, almost two months on, or certainly kind of you know six seven weeks later, when the when the Sherwood Rangers turn up with Eighth Armoured Brigade and Forty Third. Um, uh, Wessex Division and the brand new 84th Rail Splitters Division from who've been training in Texas and are completely fully formed from scratch and arrive in England at the beginning of October, land on Omaha Beach between the I think the second and fourth of November, and go straight to Guilinkirken and straight into the battle pretty much with a, a week week's grace. When they get there, the whole place is just completely trashed. There's not a single building that is intact. There's mud everywhere. It's completely miserable. There's no, you know, they're not really all going to be sort of, you know, staying, sleeping in in, in canvas outside because it's just all the fields are just absolutely, this is quite a low-lying area. It's very kind of watery. It's very waterlogged. No one's going to be sleeping in tents. So they all go into billets in the towns, in the ruins, you know, first floor only, um, and sleeping in the cellars. I mean, can you imagine anything more miserable? I mean, you know, it's wet, it's dank, there's rats, it's shit. It's just it's just awful. Every time you get out, you're covered in mud. You know, you're soaked through the whole time. Then you've got to do, go into battle. You know, this is one of the strongest parts of the West Wall, the Seafried Line, because it's a nodal point where there's rivers, there's railways, there's seven roads, blah, blah, blah. It's 20 miles due east of Cologne. So it's kind of a picket, effectively. Um, the ground is absolutely covered in mines. There's, you know, the Sherwood Rains, this is the thickest minefield they've come up against since Alamein. Um, and the whole ground is covered in mud. And, 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 you know, they've got to get across this, you know, with a brand new infantry division, which is a culturally different, um, who's never been in combat before and actually do incredibly well. But, you know, you've got to kind of work out that relationship and and the history of of their fighting in northwest europe since landing on d day has been that every time they're put with infantry that they haven't worked before cock ups occur and it's not until they've kind of worked out a kind of working relationship that things start to kind of go a little bit better so they've got all that as well uh, and you know it's just it's just absolutely appalling uh, and, and and the the conditions in which they're fighting are just absolutely awful and the days are shorter and you know the hours which means more fighting in darkness well having read you know because i'm gradually chipping my way through with the jocks as this audiobook for um for the patron listeners his description of what it's like to be in the line in november december 1944 where they're they're basically holding a um uh a place called heinsberg they're holding a wood yep part of a wood and just coming up to the Heinsberg battle. Yeah, they're not. They're not in the. And they're not. They're not. It's not a battle that they're they're holding it for now. And um, there's 17 hours of darkness, or whatever it is, a day. 
the the rain which turns to snow that you're in a foxhole that you maybe if you're lucky you've lined with straw to to keep yourself warm you're probably in a wet foxhole so your your feet are wet you're wet constantly wet and you're on this 17 hour thing with stand two at first light stand two at, at dusk for an hour each side but after all so they're not very far apart actually like they normally would be with plenty to occupy, occupy yourself during the day. Just how hard simply being in the line is. And he, and, and he then says, they, they then go into a battle <laughs> after this. And he says, I now, re-, you know, we all realised that actually being in the line like that was our rescue compared to the bit where they're fighting, where they, they, do, an, they do an assault and they're put, in, um, they're put in kangaroos for the first time. And his description of going forward in the kangaroos really reinforces this thing of, you know, right, so it's it's an allied integrated armoured assault where the infantry, are, and they've never done it before, so they have two days to go and talk to the Canadians who are running the uh, kangaroos, right? So there's, so immediately you've got two different armies working together, so immediately potential culture clash questions. Yep. They've never, you know, and these guys are, these guys are, are, are mounted infantry and they're in, and now they're having to switch to being armoured or APC-delivered infantry, mechanised infantry. So they've got to get their heads around that. They've never done it before. And and he talks about how, you know, you you're in the you're in the back of the kangaroo and you think everything's all right and then it's suddenly there's a bang because it slid off the road and hit the telegraph pole and knocked the telegraph pole over and then you've got to ext- you've all got to extricate the kangaroo. So and that wouldn't be happening on dry roads. You'd be you, you know, the the, the 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 way it slows and bogs everything down and means that everyone's late to their start line. Everyone's late for their assault and the artillery might not know this, so the barrage ends early and so on and so forth. And all these all these sort of concertinaed complications, you know, that all pile up on and it get and it makes it more difficult. And it is also it's that thing you're always attacking, aren't you? It's not like you're not in the situation the Germans in where you're always defending. So you're registering your mortars. You've got your lines of fire worked out. And of course, the Germans get good at this because this is all they're doing. <laughs> I yep. mean, why are the Germans <laughs> so good at defending? Because they're always defending. They, 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 yeah. don't, get to pr- they don't get to practice yeah, yeah. attacking. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and so on. And I think it's very interesting because I think that, that, that this is the bit of the war that people don't kind of have, have, a, have on... And- well, have on their on their register, do no. they? I think I think it's absolutely fascinating, and I'm just sort of you know I'm trying to sort of put myself in their position. I mean, you know, the, the, you know, the start of the battle is is you know kick off is at kind of six o'clock in the morning. Um, they move forward. And the first thing is is to follow um, the Sherman tanks are following um, two lanes which have been prepared by flail tanks um, of the Lovian and Borders Yeomanry. I think they are, um, and. These, these are Shermans with flails whipping up these mines, going across this absolute waterlogged mud field. Um, and, and there's two lanes, and in red lane is A Squadron under John Semkin, and he's first tank up because he knows this is going to be tough, so he thinks, OK, I'm Squadron leader, I've got to do it. So they're in the first tank, and they're following these flails. First, first fail, you know, there's, so there's, there's one troop of four flails, and they're going to be four flails wide. So there's a nice big wide corridor going through this minefield that they can all follow in. Before they even started, one of the flails bogs down. So they haven't even got into the minefield yet and, it's, and it can't operate. So suddenly it's only going to be three flails wide. They get halfway across and then the second flail goes. They've still got 50 metres to go when the last of the flails packs up. 
<coughs> you know, all these chains, they're just getting covered in mud. So that's putting much more strain on the flail itself, the actual turning drum. So that's not working. And, and, and also, you know, tank tracks, yes, they can go over most things, but they just, you know, they just can't, it's so much mud, which is then straining the engine. It just can't, it just, just, and it starts to slip and it just can't do it. So John Semkin is in his tank and he's thinking, what do I do? Do we, do we just reverse? Or do I take a deep breath and go, okay, I'm just going to have to be the, I'm going to have to be the guinea pig here. I'm just going to have to go for it and, and, and hope that we get through. So he gets on the net and he goes, okay, sorry, boys, you know, it, it's tough, but we're just going to have to, you know, we've got a job to do. This is what we've got to do. We've got to get through it. We've got to do it. Um, I'll lead. If I hit a mine, the next person has got to follow and you're just going to have to do this until we've got through. There's no alternative. So they inch round the kind of the last knocked out flail, go along and then and they're fine. They're literally within 10, 15 yards of getting through it. There's the railway embankment. That's the that's the finishing point. <coughs> Suddenly there's this massive wham and the whole tank just gets lifted up into the air and crashes back down again. And there's a sort of choking silence for a moment. And then Semkin goes, is everyone all right? And everyone goes, yeah, everyone checks in. They're all OK. They're not, not a single person has been killed. And eventually he and, and Arthur Reddish, who's his gunner, get, get out of the tank and they look at the tank and they're in this massive crater. Which is actually to their advantage because it now means they're kind of lower. Yeah, they're covered. Yeah, they're yeah. covered to a certain extent because it's pretty flat around there, and all the wheels and all the tracks have vanished. <laughs> and they That's have. The, the, they reckon they've got the unique. Certainly within the Sherwood Rangers, they have the unique distinction of simultaneously hitting four mines. Oh my god! But it does a trick because they then get through. The rest yeah. then follow yeah, up and yeah, they get they're through. Everyone there gets down, yeah. and you know it's all a bit sticky and stodgy and all the rest of it. But but later on that afternoon in B Squadron, they get onto this high point, which is not very high at all. It's point one oh one, which tells you all you need to know. I mean, it's really it's it's not. Um, but it's above this little steep, uh, this little short, sharp kind of eighty foot high escarpment. And I remember sending you photos of of of, of a mine that I found in that wooden escarpment and a bunker that I found there last when I was there last October. So it's just above that, or, or just a bit further north, above this escarpment is point one oh one. And Peter Soleri, who is the commander of, the, of B Squadron, joins up with, with Lieutenant Colonel Gomez, who is the commander of the 2nd Battalion of the 334th Infantry Regiment. And and it is exactly what you were saying about anti-tank guns. So Gomez is in a state because all his half-tracks towing anti-tank guns have bogged down. And he says, I've got to have fun. You know, this is our, this is our, our you know, this is our objective line for, for, for day one. I need my anti-tank guns up here. I'm, not, I'm just, you know, I'm not not sitting up here with Germans coming from the north, you know, without my anti-tank guns. So Soleri then has to send a troop to go and get them out of the, you know, tow them out. Yeah, yeah. And by last light, which is only about five o'clock. Well, yes, that, that's the other thing is that you're, you've got very they're little in place. To play with. But but you know, it's just it, it, you know that's a whole level of extra bother and hassle and and crap you've got to deal with just to function you know so you're absolutely spot on you know i mean it's no just, jim the allies it's the allies are too slow that's what it is they're just too they're slow, just too, too slow cautious. they're just you know they're come too on slow, too and you know you know what and the and the generals are just <laughs> they just don't share the tactical nous of the germans do they i mean honestly <laughs> we're going to take a very short break now we'll be back in a second with a couple of questions bye 
Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk with me, Al Murray, and James Holland. And uh, we, we're going to answer some questions now because we, what we did there was classic <laughs> We Have Ways sidetrack. But, yeah, but I mean, it was the, interesting, the, the, though, wasn't it? I mean, the thing and is... And also, I find, yeah, I've got to say, I just I find it incredibly helpful to talk this stuff through because I sit here in my, my little den thinking about these things and writing this stuff. But actually, having the opportunity to talk to you about it and actually articulate what I'm thinking and hear your views on it as well, it kind of makes me think, mm, yeah, I'm just going to go back and tweak that little bit of it. You know, so, you know, it really does help. Simple time of year. Hours of daylight available. If you're yeah. fighting, If you're fighting in Normandy in June and you're putting a dawn attack in, what's that, four o'clock in the morning? Um, uh, late late June, early July, four o'clock in the morning for a dawn attack, and you're probably f- and you're fighting till <clears> ten <throat> till last light, maybe. It's the v- direct reverse of this now, this time of year, isn't it? Is yep. that your dawn your dawn attack will be what eight nine o'clock in the morning, maybe, and you're done by five. Yeah. And so, a- and you can't fight with armor during the night. It's too right. dangerous. Yep. So so. Of course, everything's slower. Of course, the tempo has to the tempo necessarily has to change, and that's before you factor in it raining for a week. You know, I mean, I I think it is it is interesting after all because because you know the First World War it, it, the, the the thing that you don't the thing they don't figure out for a long time in the First World War is how in appalling terrain in difficult conditions you break you you break through the enemy front line crust and get moving. And turn it back into war and manoeuvre. This is a permanent state of ha- of having solved that problem. The Second World War. This phase of the Second World War in particular. Is a permanent phase of that solution being played out. But it's it's still really, really, really difficult. It's, still it's just, really just, difficult. I mean, just, just imagine you a tank when it's pouring with rain. You've still got hatches open. You've still got water coming in. You know, you're wearing you're wearing these pixie suits. Although someone's written to me to tell me that they weren't called pixie suits then. They were just called outsize uh, outer tank suits or outer suits or something. Anyway, whatever. We know what we're talking about. Okay. <laughs> You've got that, that. But those are, by the nature, you know, they are oversuits you know that you, you put them on over your battle dress so that just means you're you're just a little less maneuverable than you were which just adds to the difficulty not in a big way but it just means you're not as mobile as you were because you're kind of a bit stiff and you're a bit kind of well you might snag on things more easily and you and might all snag on thing things too. more easily and all the rest of it but in your tank you know you've got water dripping in which means you know the base of the turret which if, if you remember is quite it's quite you know it's it's metally and steel and you know it's quite easy to slip around and it's also just miserable because you've got water coming down the back of your neck you know well and and you can't see anyway looking you can't see much anyway looking through the optics out of a out of a Sherman, and you, you can't see a lot anyway. Water. And if it, yeah, if, you, if the rate, if there's heavy rain, the visibility's bad. You can't see a thing. Um, uh, it's like you know, like wearing a you know, like a diving helmet, isn't it? Basically, or or yeah, whatever. No anyway, should we answer? Let's let should we answer, should we answer a question anyway? Let's answer a question. Ed Roberts. Um, right, he says um, he's doing an MA at, Man- at Manchester University. I recently discovered the pod, and so far it's been a great tonic to my MA studies while stuck in lockdown. So thank you, and well done to all involved. My grandfather's brother spent his war service as the rear gunner to a coastal command B twenty four Liberator operating over the North Sea and the Baltic. Most notably, spotting a flailing U boat and subsequently saving the lives of the German submariners on board. My question to you guys is how important a role did Coastal Command play and why did they potentially not get the acknowledgement they deserve? Many thanks, Ed. 
Well, they absolutely played an absolutely vital role. Um, and actually, um, there's a very, very good book that was written a little while ago uh, by Christina J.M. Goulter called A Forgotten Offensive, Royal Air Force Coastal Command's Anti-Shipping Campaign, 1940 to 1945. And it's one of these Frank Cass books um, that's overseen by our friend Seb Cox. So, so they're not quite official histories, but they're kind of officially sanctioned by the Air Historical Branch. Uh, and, and Christina would have been given, you know, every possible help she possibly could have been with with sort of um um original documents and data and data and statistics and all the rest of it uh, and it, and it's absolutely fascinating and she makes that point i mean you know coastal command you know anti-shipping operations with um very long-range liberators is just one aspect of what they're doing but they're also um doing much stuff much closer to home um doing an awful lot of stuff in scandinavia as well you know and trying to trying to uh, so yes they're trying to knock out u-boats and that's an incredibly important part um and what you do discover is that whenever um so so surface escorts of of convoys and, and warships are very effective at destroying u-boats but when you can have air power destroying u-boats as well then suddenly that's a game changer so the moment air power effectively comes into the Battle of the Atlantic, the Battle of the Atlantic is over. So, so it is closing the air gap over the over the Atlantic is 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 what really signals the end, as much as moving forward with new technologies, um, new weaponry, and all the anti ship you know anti submarine weaponry and all the rest of it. So, so absolutely they play a, a completely vital role. But they're also playing a very important role in in attacking German shipping. Uh, and we sort of forget that the Germans did have merchant shipping, but they did. Um, and it's very interesting. And of course, you know, compared to kind of um, the British merchant ship, merchant fleet, and American merchant fleet and a whole host of other countries, not not least Norway as well, who brought most of their merchant fleet over to over to Britain. You know, they do have a lot. And, you know, they, they start off in um, uh, 1940 with about, mm, well, by the end of 1940, they've got about 840 merchant ships available um by the end of 1941 they've got just over a thousand that figures the same in 1942 um and uh drops to yeah just about a thousand by the end of 1943 and and half that by the end of 1944 as you would expect but they are still making ships they're still getting ships as well merchant ships um and overall coastal command alone Sinks three hundred and sixty-six um, vessels, nearly all of which are along the um, Scandinavian coast, delivering iron ore from Sweden. You know, so it's not it's not an insignificant amount. Yeah, a friend of mine's a friend of mine's uh, father. Um, he was a Glaswegian who'd moved to Tasmania and then came back to serve uh, to fight, and he ended up in four hundred seven Demon Squadron, Royal Canadian Air Force, who were part of coastal. They were a coastal strike squadron. Yes, um, and they flew. They flew Blenheims, and then I, I can't remember what he graduated to. But he was a tail Must gunner. Be bow in, fighters in, and mosquitoes. Uh, well, no, I th- no, I think I think they were in Liberators too. I can't remember okay. anyway. But they flew on the they flew on I think the Lubeck raid as well. Right. When 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 um, they were making up numbers for th- a thousand bomber raid. Yes. Because very often you got you you got the, the coastal command would be would be brought in to make up the numbers on those big raids and some of the bomber conversion squadrons as well. So people on their right. training would suddenly be put in the bomber stream. 
Um, and he has his logbook. This old mate, mate of mine, Sharpie, has his logbook. I should get him. I should see if I can dig that up because that might be really, really yeah, interesting. fascinating. And he was because he was so, like I say, so he was a Glaswegian Tasmanian who ended up in a, you know, in a in a in a Canadian Air Force squadron um, uh, as part of Coastal Command. Which, if you want to, if you want to, if you want to, like sketch of. The, the 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 British Empire Imperial War effort there it is, and Dominion's War you cared as I've called it you look at that effort there it is right there yeah yeah yes I mean the thing is we do we we don't do enough navy and then Coastal Command even comes under navy in the we don't do enough but the, but um, it, it doesn't uh, make any sense because <laughs> they have bow fighters which are really cool and they have mosquitoes which are really cool. Um uh, and, and actually VLR Liberators is, is the, pretty cool frankly is it the mosquito that has the mosquito that has that mole gun thing. It's like an automatic six pounder. Don't know. Mole the mole gun. That's the, the automatic six pounder that they that they make that they fit to a couple of mosquitoes. And basically, it's like a it's a six pounder anti tank weapon. The one with you know. Right. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, I've but never heard of it. Was it called the Molson gun? I can't remember what it's called. I'm gonna I'm gonna. But you know these bow fighters. You know they're they're scurrying across, kind of sort of hammering the Norwegian coastline and Swedish coastline and stuff. Well, not Sweden so much, but certainly the Norwegian coastline, sinking ships, doing strikes in in, in Norway. And and you know there's no question about it. You know when you've got three hundred what is it three hundred thousand German troops in Norway at the end of the war. Yeah, yeah. It's the Mollins gun. Mollins. And it's fitted to the. It's fitted to the. Um, so they, they put it on... Oh, sorry, I have gone to Wikipedia. They put it on motor torpedo boat, boats and then they put it on the Mosquito and call it the Setze gun. And it's oh. uh, it's literally an automatic uh, six-pounder for, for attacking shipping. I mean, what a, what a thing yeah. that must have been. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. I mean, but, you know, they do... And I suppose, I suppose a lot of it is because a lot of what they're doing is overseas and, you know, it's the same old problem, isn't it? You know, you can't go and visit that. Yeah. Yeah, 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 and also it falls into, you know, German German shipping being sunk. You know, again, and it's, maybe it goes back to the other thing we were talking about earlier on is we are so we are so key to the idea of battles. We are so key to the idea of decisive encounters, and it's a thing we talked about before with um, uh, course it was, was it with Payson, Phillips O'Brien yes. about the fact that a lot of this is simply crumble, crumble. You're crumbling away rather than having massive decisive encounters. You know, coastal command patrol that goes out sinks sinks a ship you know every other week isn't isn't an epic clash like say goodwood or or um yeah. you know any of the sort of high profile events well uh, yeah it, it, absolutely but it's um but you know it, it doesn't mean they're not playing a really really important role because of no. course they are i think we should try and get christina jm gulter on she's at the u.s naval war college Terrific. Should be fascinating, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to talk about, Jim. That's what we've, what we've demonstrated with this podcast today is that um, there's lots to talk about and we will talk about it. <laughs> Do you know what? Literally, five minutes before we were coming on, I was like, what are we going to talk about today? I literally can't think of anything. <laughs> I seriously was. I was like, exactly the same. <laughs> you know, Tony sends in the script at kind of, you know, 30 seconds before kickoff. And an and excellent script, script it always is too. Always. Anyway, always, always. anyway, I just, anyway. I just hadn't thought what, what we were going to do. And there we are. We, we've seamlessly <laughs> gone on, witted on for 55 minutes. Yeah, yeah but an automatic six-pounder, that's what I'm talking about. That's, I'm yeah. going to go What's it called? A, a, a Milson. The, Mil- Mil- the Mollins gun. Mollins gun. gun. Yeah. Wow. And the Setsy, Mark 18 uh, 
uh, Mosquito. Anyway, on Thursday, we're exploring the story of Hans Globke, the man who wrote much of the Nazi race law um, uh, before the war and yet somehow became an architect of the new post-war Germany, plus an ironic atom bomb element. The Times Berlin correspondent uh, Oliver Moody joins us. I mean, there must be there's some cachet being the Times man in Berlin, isn't there? I mean, yeah. well, it sounds like a Grand Green novel, doesn't it? It, do, it certainly does. And Thursday evening, we'll be live streaming at 8.30pm. Uh, remember to join us via our member site, patreon.com slash wehaveways. Don't miss that. You never know who might turn up. Bye for now. Cheerio.